Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Greg. Hello. And Alex. Hi. We've spent a lot of time in the past on Punching Out talking about union busting and the various forms that takes. We've talked about the Pinkertons and we've talked about more recently Amazon's effort at crushing unionization at their warehouses. Today we're going to take a look at some of the um, companies that fashion themselves as progressives and nevertheless respond to uh, unionization and their own workforce in ways that look very similar once you get past the flowery rhetoric. Um, Alex, you have a bit of firsthand experience with this. Uh, You worked at a grocery store called um, Hearts. And um, just for listeners who might not be familiar, what's Hearts' deal? Uh, Well, Hearts' deal was they, um, they packed up and folded some time ago. Um, they were sort of a grocery store for the growing class of people uh, moving to downtown Rochester. Uh, they move into these expensive uh, lofts and expensive apartment buildings that they're building all over the East End and the old Inner Loop area. So it was like health food and like kind of expensive food. And then on the bottom shelves, they would have like your sort of like regular name brand stuff, you know. So they tried to sort of play it like that. There was a, you know, a cafe in there. It's where I worked um, uh, during my time there. And they had this sort of reputation for um, progressive uh, customer base and progressive uh, leadership management. Uh, very, very much so. They um, during an altercation with the general manager over um, calling the police on 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 people panhandling outside. Uh, she actually used the term um, if. If these people are scaring the customers away, then we can't make money and then we can't help Rochester. Um, so the project was very much, uh, we're going to swoop in, we're going to revitalize Rochester. Uh, all of the uh, press, if you if you Google hearts, you're going to get a bunch of sort of like PR press about there. So, you know, they're hiring people from various programs and they gathered these sort of like uh, progressive donor base. There was a sort of a shadow uh, group of um investors in addition to the main owner that everybody knew about. Hmm. And now you were involved in organizing at heart. So organizing uh, labor there, right? Yes. Uh, What all can you tell me about what that was like and, you know, your role in it? Yeah. I mean, so I I came to the job with a, with very much, um, you know, I've, I've long believed that unions are the way forward for working people and period. This was my first experience actually sort of like putting those ideas into practice. And that really came from just frustration, you know, underneath this progressive message. um, uh, I made something like, I don't even remember what the minimum wages were at the time, but I made something like a quarter or 40 cents over the minimum wage. Um, And there were, there were no benefits, um, 
the cafe where I work was incredibly busy almost all, you know, a good part of the time. There was a big part of the, the frustration for people working there. And for me was the, um, the absolute mismanagement. What you basically had was um, sort of a spoiled rich guy who wasn't from Rochester from what I could gather. He came to town to open a special project type grocery store and had no clue how to do this sort of thing. And then he hired what I, I can only imagine were his friends or associates who also didn't know what they were doing. The result was the job was, was terrible for the workers. I happened to know uh, a great organizer from one of the local SDIU branches, a little unorthodox for a grocery store. And so we got to talking and before you knew it, me and a couple of close um, co-workers, you know, who I, I, I befriended, uh, also cafe workers. We had an organizing committee going and um, it sort of went from there. Uh, can I just ask, aside from like the low pay, like what issues were you running in with management that like made it so hard? Like, was it your schedule? Was it how they treated you? Things like that. Yeah, the, the scheduling was what um, lots of people encountered. It was just like random. It changed every week. You know, they, um, you know, you had management and then you had like management who were just like a tiny bump above the rest of us who were given a large, you know, the lion's share of the sort of like organizational duties. And they also weren't trained how to do any of this kind of stuff. They were sort of like thrown to run these various departments. And um a lot of them did the best they could, and we actually got a fair number of them on cards. We were going to try and make the argument that they were, in fact, uh, more like us than they were like them. Um, and so a lack of support, um, constantly changing sort of policy and procedures, uh, little to no training. Um, I had to learn how to brew espresso shots out of that stupid machine you know i'd never done such a thing before you know what i mean like they, they just they they would say here's your job good luck and then here's a thousand uh people from the <laughs> from east Ave who are going to ask you for stuff yeah so lack of support really was the the big thing for management you, you talk about scheduling being an issue and you know i've worked in a kitchen where the schedule is it shows up like two days before the day it starts and it's entirely the whim of the manager who, you know, is sort of a similar situation where he's uh, a friend of the owner, um, in this case, the owner's son. So it's just you're, you're really at the mercy of just uh, what he's spitting out on the schedule. And you'll find out you know, 48 hours before your shift starts, if that that, hey, you've got to work Sunday. Right, right. Um, like most jobs for people at, you know, this sort of level, which is a lot of people, um, e scheduling things like a doctor's appointment or God forbid, um, something fun for your own life and enjoyment, uh, comes after the job, even though the job gives you, you know, nine bucks and, um, uh, you can get your health insurance from the government, <laughs> you know, right. And I worked part-time for a few years there and I could never commit to anything like more than two weeks in advance. Or like, and especially not on a weekend because I knew I, there was a good chance I'd be working one of those days. Now, how did management respond to your unionization effort? Um, I assume they weren't very happy about it. 
I just had just one quick more thought about, about scheduling. Um, this made it incredibly difficult to organize also. Like when everyone's on a schedule that you don't know until the next day, like when are you supposed to have your, your, your uh, committee meetings? Um, so we ended up sort of like doing the, the no-no stuff and like doing a lot of like organizing talk on the shop floor and, and things like that, which was fun. So sorry, uh, your question no, no once again was... Um, how did management respond to this unionization effort? Uh, I assume they weren't happy about it. Right. So we actually at one point did a, we did a march on the boss. Um, and so a march on the boss for anyone listening doesn't know is when you, um, you know, you gather the supporters that you have. Um, and up until this time you've been working in secret, you know, we built, we built a little bit of power in the store in secret. And then, um, came to the store with a sort of official thing saying, Hey, we intend to organize a union with this organization. And, um, uh, we demand that you sort of back off and let us do it, which of course the answer to that is never yes from any boss. For that. Right. Um, the immediate response was sort of like, well, we don't understand what you guys are upset about. Again, I think that, I think that, management really they bought into their own like we are progressive we are good guys sort of stuff the owner actually sent out a long flowery email to all the employees um and, and basically saying in the nicest possible terms like if you form a union i won't be able to afford to have the store anymore uh which immediately sent us to sort of inoculating workers that like in fact um, in, in many of these contracts, you know, we win this thing, they open up the books to us and we can just take a look to see exactly what they can afford to give us. Um, so there's the transparency there, of course. He also included, this goes into the, you know, the progressive management thing. He included in his response email, something about, I'd be happy to sell this store to the workers so they could run it as some kind of like collective or something as if we have, as if we all had like disposable income laying around. Um, and, 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 and as if our main gripe wasn't like, Hey, you're not paying us enough money to survive. That I, I don't know if I've ever seen that tactic before that that's a new one. <laughs> and, and, and it got, um, it got a little bit of traction, you know, most people found it absolutely ridiculous, like regular folks, and this it goes into something that my organizer friend told me, like, when you're doing this work, you can't rely on people's, like, ex espoused politics. You know, there was this guy who was, like, always reading, like, James Baldwin at the cashier thing. And, like, you know, he seemed like a pretty cool, progressive, like, smart, um, maybe a Marxist even. Like, and, you know, he fell for the let's buy the store uh, thing hook line and sinker and wanted to argue with me about it and by that by that point in time i was like on fire about this thing and i wasn't about to have that conversation with him at all so i think we lost him as i told him where you could take that sort of line of thinking i i'm sorry but like did he have a plan to get like financing in place to have workers buy out the business it's like it, i don't feel like that even exists right now like i mean i got jesus i mean i i and I hope he's not listening because <laughs> he's, cause he was kind of, he was a nice guy too, but like, I can't imagine that I didn't say something to that effect. And I think I was probably 
just met with like, like if he was coming to me with a defense of like that idea that we're going to buy the store, he's not going to understand my rebuttal to that anyways, maybe. Um, I don't know. You talk about management there sort of buying into this idea of the store having a purpose. Um, a couple of months ago, we had an episode uh, talking to a couple of people who worked at nonprofits and the story was sort of similar there where, you know, they could ask for more pay, but they knew that the budget was limited and this money would be taken out of whatever the organization's broader goal was. And they felt a sense of guilt about, you know, wanting to be treated better at, you know, at their job, you know, because they understood that resources at a place like that were in fact limited, but it's just having to strike that balance, you know, because you do have to be treated well in your workplace. And like the store was honestly, it was, it was struggling. It wasn't like it was making a lot of money. Like we all saw like them and they were struggling under the weight of their own mismanagement. They were losing money because they could not keep the place organized enough to keep the customers coming in. Um, they weren't paying their vendors, you know, like it was, it was, it was a total mess in that place. Um, and you know, they did find some sympathy among the workers who were like, Oh, you know, we're not, we're not doing so great right now. How is a union going to fix that situation? You know? And of course, you know, those of us who believe in unions think that a, a democrat, a more democratic workplace will certainly fix a lot of those issues. Right. Well, some of the thing, it's like, it's not just about pay increases taking away from the business. It seemed like some of the issues you were concerned about were like scheduling and training. And if it adds to a sense of like professionalism around the workplace, it just makes it run better if there's more input from the workers. Uh, safety was another thing that I kept. So I, I didn't really realize people were concerned about this until I started talking to a lot of them. Um, we had like coolers that were like spilling out pools of water on the floor constantly. and um, you know, it was just like, it was just hazardous. All the equipment was breaking down secondhand. So safety was another thing. And at the end of the day, like a grocery store is not quite the same as an organization that is committed to like advocating for change. You know, it's, it's a grocery store. It, its purpose is to make money and sell food. It's, it's, it can't be this, some um, sort of, uh, mission for the city sort of thing that management seemed to think. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, I want to move on a bit to some other uh, recent examples of this sort of thing happening at um, places that um, have these progressive mantras, but nevertheless um, don't respond well to um, workers organizing. And, uh, but before I do like, how, how did all that turn out? Like, did you win your effort unionization um we didn't you know there's some there's some definitely some lessons to take from this too um well into the campaign and we were really gaining some traction um you know it, i discovered that i actually had to go have surgery for a hernia and so the lesson here was um you know we had an organizing committee that was meeting regularly we were doing trainings for people to like talk to their coworkers, you know, to be quite honest, I was doing far too much of that work. You know, me and the, the organizer guy were, um, and I haven't talked to him, so I don't want to say his name. Um, but you know, we were doing a, a the lion's share of the organizing. And when I had a health problem, 
the whole thing started to sort of unravel. Um, management, of course, uh, didn't have a health problem and kept on with their, their sort of uh, stuff. As ultimately, you know, we were getting up over that hump of 50%. This was a very standard sort of card check thing that we were uh, going for. Um, and then by that point, it was actually so, um, it sort of fell, fell apart so much. We decided to call it. So yeah, that was very sad. Now what you're talking about sounds a lot about, a lot like, um, the story that, uh, Greg shared in uh, Jacobin from a couple of years ago about, uh, no evil foods, which is a, um, I'll just quote from the article. Uh, Social Justice is No Evil Foods' brand. Founded in 2014, the company, whose products are now sold by 5,500 retailers, is the fastest-growing meat alternative in conventional stores, according to Sadra Shadal, who, along with Mike Woliansky, started the company. Representatives of their left-wing branding are products like El Zapatista, a vegan chorizo product, and Comrade Cluck, a vegan chicken product. Their website describes the company as revolutionary and socially conscious. No evil, after all. They're good people. But if you ask No Evil's workers what they think about the company, they say Shadow and Woliansky are union busters. This story is the most insane thing ever because it is like the height of hypocrisy when you're naming your food products after a Mexican socialist revolutionary and then comrade cluck, which also refers to like socialism. It's and then you're like, so anti-union. It is like insane. I've had their products. How is it? They're, they're not bad. Yeah. <laughs> I, it, it was funny. Cause later on in the article, they had the, um, like three times a week, mandatory meetings where they talk about, uh, how bad unions are and how evil unions are or whatever. Three times a um, week. For like a couple weeks. Yeah. Uh, before the union vote. Did, did uh, Hearts have you guys do mandatory meetings? Where they talk to you about how bad unions were or anything like that? Or now it didn't get to that point. There was there. So there was one and it came. I mean, I, ha- I have to tell this part. This is, this is, this was the best part of the whole campaign. Um, Every year, Hearts did a sort of like anniversary party thing. Um, and during that year, uh, we completely hijacked it. Uh, and they made uh, we made stickers with the name of the union uh, saying Hearts Union, yes, and Hearts Worker Appreciation Day. And we built it as a thing. You know, we had activists um, standing at all of the entrances all day long, handing out things saying why we needed a union. All of the customers in the store that day, which was like way more than usual, were overwhelmingly supportive of us, uh, which was great. Give us a chance to talk to some people. But yeah, shortly thereafter, they did have a, a captive audience meeting, which we sort of trained people up ahead of time to sort of know what to expect and what to do. We sent them in there with like, I don't even remember. It was something to, to, to disrupt the sort of narrative that they were going to, we thought they were going to build. Um, they ended up like not really mentioning it at all. And then they started this sort of like weird restructuring of the store that they were, they were isolating people and sort of like playing the nice guy bit, picking off people one by one. It was really, really weird. The the poor HR guy at the time, he was actually a really nice guy. I don't think he really knew what was going on. Um, 
So yeah, they did have one, but it wasn't. It was different than than what you might expect. It seemed like they were smart that they had like you were prepared to like tell the workers what to expect, and then they worked around it. It might have seemed like they did. Is yeah, that- they didn't have the uh, Wegman's video that everybody starts off with that orientation about why unions are evil. <laughs> they, so like their their line was like unions are good, we just can't afford one. Right now, we support unions everywhere except in our workplace. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like the classic line at so many uh, progressive companies um, from in all sorts of industries. Um, you know, we talked about those um, captive audience meetings um, a few weeks back when we were talking about the unionization effort at Amazon. Um, and, you know, this is a favorite weapon of management. They love being able to make workers attend meetings. And, um, in the case of no evil foods, like you mentioned, they were up to three hour, three times a week and they lasted up to two hours each, which two hour meeting is too long for anything, much less, you know, anti-union nonsense. Gets to a point where you're like, I'll vote for whatever you want. Just stop these meetings. (laughs) Right. That's sort of like, there's this sort of attitude people have of like, I just want to be left alone. And that goes into much deeper sort of individualist versus collective action sort of stuff, I think. Yeah. And, um, you know, something we've talked about is that under the PRO Act, which is currently uh, somewhere in the congressional process, uh, you know, these captive audience meetings would no longer be allowed, or at least they'd be, you know, against the law. We know that companies like Amazon uh, have a habit of violating labor law and the punishments for that aren't all that uh, punitive. But nevertheless, it would be good to have, you know, on the books, something that would prevent companies from doing this because... The PRO Act would also increase the monetary punishments as well. Like, yeah. it's so necessary whenever you read this kind of stuff about unions. I mean, not, not only that, but when, it, when a company explicitly does something illegal, knowing that they're going to get away with it, that's another talking point when you're talking to the, your next coworker. Being like, "Look, they're just flaunting the law. They don't. They they can get away with with murder unless we sort of get together and fight back against them." Right. So, so often the cost of like whatever fine they might receive is going to be less than in the long term. You know what they would pay out to workers if they had unionization widespread at you know their stores or their warehouses, whatever it may be. I, I want to quote some more from this article. Um, they, they talk about how a few workers were actually fired for their organizing efforts. Um, the company line was that they were fired for violating social distancing, but um, workers uh, noted, quote, how other companies such as Amazon have used social distancing violations to target organizers. Another leader in the organizing efforts, Courtney Rauschy, says she was fired for dress code violations. She was told her pants were too short, but she too sees this as retaliation for organizing. Um, Quote, I think they are full of expletive, says another employee who was involved in the organizing drive and was recently fired. It's a huge red flag when a company uses this much left-wing imagery and has a turnover rate as high as they do. Uh, And the the last quote here is really good. Uh, The owners of this company are faking progressive values harder than they are faking meat. (laughs) Some choice quotes. It's um, 
Uh, yeah, other than the mandatory meetings, just firing and retaliation, and then not receiving punishment is uh, is just one of the biggest tactics. It reminds me of the article on the uh, nonprofit uh, civics when people were fired, and then they went to the NLRB, this Democrat-aligned nonprofit, fired like kind of like worker leaders, and then they complained to the NLRB, and then the NLRB was full of Trump appointments. And then they sided with the Democratic company, which is very interesting. <laughs> right. Um, you're, you're talking about this article in uh, New York Magazine, which uh, came out April 1st. It's by Sarah Jones. Uh, headline, a Democratic firm is accused of firing workers for speaking up. Uh, this company, Civis, is um, a company that worked on Joe Biden's campaign. And, you know, their employees were not being treated well, not being treated with to the sort of standard that you know, the Democratic presidential candidate would suggest workers should be treated. Um, you know, I can quote from this article. Um, Sarah Clem says she panicked once she got the same bad news about being fired because she'd spoken out about their um, uh, treatment of workers. Uh, quote, I realized it was the end of the month. I went to the pharmacy to refill a prescription for the chronic meds and get my flu shop while, while I still had insurance. Clem, who lives in Washington, D.C., explains. Once again, it's a company that espouses these values and wants to get uh, you know, ostensibly you know, progressives elected. But when it comes to their own workforce, they don't live up to that code. It's, um, it, it's funny. There's a, a great quote from one of those workers that's fired that was like, you know, I'm a progressive. I don't want to work for like Blackwater or anything. But then it's like, I'm beginning to hate the word progressive because it doesn't mean anything um, when workers are when companies that espouse progressive values are so incredibly anti-worker. Right. S- sort of the uh, key quote in this article is a uh, Civis advertised its progressive principles to the world and it sought employees committed to social good, as the company says on its website. Now it had abandoned the same workers without notice, without health care, without cause, in the middle of a deadly public health crisis. Uh, Twelve current and former Civis employees say the company's internal practices fell short of its public promise to be a progressive place to work. Um, you know, they, they just wanted the company to live up to what it was saying on its own website. I think maybe the, the most... Um maybe ridiculous example of this. I've spoken to labor organizers that felt that they needed, and I'm sure that they did, to organize as workers within their union. So like they were, uh, it would be a union of labor organizers in the union and the union is management. Um, So that's labor law in the United States. (laughs) There's sort of a rich history in, in the U.S. of these Unions becoming um, sort of ossified at the top, sort of stagnant, and you know their their goals may not be the same. You know, management union management's goals may not be the same as those of the rank and file workers. You know, they have different priorities. We had a poacher from another union come. That was an interesting bit too. This another guy from another union, a total greaseball. I don't. I'm not even afraid to say it. Like, <laughs> just started showing up and like sitting in his car and trying to like talk to. To like out organize us into a different union. It was the most ridiculous thing. I like, I like walked away from the cash register and told him I was taking a break. And I called this guy and I screamed at him outside for a good five minutes. Like, most ridiculous thing I've ever encountered. 
Like why? <laughs> that That's, just seems like such a terrible waste of resources. Like to get the dues from the 35 people that work there. Like it's, um, it's funny what you're saying about uh, unions needing to unionize. Cause I feel like that is going on a little bit in Rochester with uh, the, the teachers union here in roar where these more, you know, active uh, teachers feel the need to make their own caucus within the teachers union. That's a whole other issue. Um, just to give some ex specifics on what uh, these workers at Civis were dealing with them. Um, Quote, in March 2020, as the pandemic began and the Democratic primary hit its most frantic tempo, contract employees struggled with heavy workloads and waited for permanent jobs that had been promised but never appeared. Right after the pandemic hit and staff moved to remote work, the company introduced a controversial new policy. Members of its government team now had to hit a quota of billable hours, starting at an average of 37 and a half a week. Civis told staff that the new policy would be more equitable than the status quo, which saw some employees billing at much higher rates than others. Quotas aren't all that unusual for consulting companies, but Civis paired its quota with an unlimited paid time off, which was. Workers also had non-billable job responsibilities to perform on top of the quota, and former employees say that when staff took sick leave, even in the middle of a pandemic, they had to make up the hours later. Um. And, and this is just, you know, common workplace stuff. Uh, you know, people not wanting to take sick leave because they only have so much of it or they know that they won't get paid for it because their company doesn't even offer sick leave. It's um, And in the middle of a pandemic, we all know that that's not good. It's uh, the worst example of that in the article was the woman who I, I believe her aunt or grandmother uh, someone very close to her had passed away and she asked for time off. And then they said, all right, you can take the time off, but then you have to make up all your billable hours afterwards on top of it. And it was just like outrageous. That would seem to be a big catalyst for them. Uh, and it's so funny because they were taking, it, it wasn't just Joe Biden. They were taking clients like McDonald's and Facebook. It, it seemed like they were doing really well and then still abusing their workers. And then because they were quote progressive. So this was not a case of a company that was like on its dying legs, you know, saying we can't afford this. This is a company that very much could afford this. Well, it was interesting. They said, oh, the campaign is winding down. This was back uh, during the election, Joe Biden versus um, Trump. And they're like, oh, the reason we fired these outspoken workers is because the election was winding down. And then they had job listings not long after to replace many of those positions. And then they were criticized and then just hired within the company. Uh, to try to like deflect from that criticism. And, and then th this, uh, the head of the company was a former uh, high ranking Obama official, I think at the comms department, um, which is kind of related to um, Amazon. Also the uh, head of their PR, I forget his name. He uh, is Jay Carney. Yes. Obama's former press secretary. And then who worked for the Uber during their, um, what was it? Prop 22 in California. Is that, I could have the number right. I'm sorry. The, Obama administration officials have almost all ended up at Silicon Valley companies or Amazon in one form or another. Um, Eric Holder went back to Wall Street. Um, so there's a rich legacy there that we could pick from, but I'm probably getting sidetracked on that yeah. point. Um, I think we should take a break at this point, And when we come back, we can talk a bit about Amazon and some of the broader 
aspects of this of this issue. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Greg. Hello. And Alex. Hello. We talked a bit in the first segment about the uh, disparity between supposedly progressive companies' rhetoric and the way they actually treat their workers, especially when those workers are trying to organize. And I I think there's a similar trend that's been happening in – a related trend, I should say, that's been happening in the news over the last few weeks of companies that are nevertheless um, you know, notorious union busters and notoriously bad towards their workers that – are now getting flack from you know Republicans who are historically the defenders of big business for taking even just mild social stances that you know might seem progressive. Um, one of the biggest examples of this is Amazon, a, a company that uh, we talk about a lot on this show. Um, as listeners surely know, they were dealing with a unionization battle in Alabama at a warehouse. At there um, over the past couple months. Uh, just this past week, the results from that election came in and uh, the union was voted down. Um, there are there will be challenges to that result. Uh, Amazon was found to have pressured USPS and into installing a new mailbox right in the middle of the warehouse where management could monitor employees who were dropping off their ballots. Um, among other ways in which Amazon was bending and outright violating uh, what labor law says you can do with regards to elections. But um, in the midst of this, there were a couple, not many, Republican voices who spoke out in favor of the union, not because they had suddenly grown wise to the benefits of collective power for workers, but because they um, felt Amazon was just too darn woke now, um, which is just very funny to me. It's it's really remarkable because the most prominent uh, senator, Republican senator who spoke out against Amazon and for the uh, union effort was Marco Rubio. And he wrote an op ed uh, in USA Today. And uh, my favorite quote from this is this paragraph where he says, uniquely malicious corporate behavior like Amazon's justifies a, a more adversarial approach to labor relations. And he also says, Today, it might be workplace conditions that require union effort, but tomorrow it might be a requirement that the workers embrace management's latest woke human resources fad. So first of all, he's saying that Amazon is uniquely uh, uh, abusive to its workers, which is not true. And then second of all, he's just more angry that Amazon is woke more than the fact that they are abusing their workers. Like, it's just absolute insanity. Right. He doesn't support unions in the abstract. And he even mentions in the article that he's generally against unions and, you know, feels that they're abusive in some form or other. But nevertheless, they're a necessary evil when it comes to battling Amazon for the crime of it's not even clear what he's mad about. I, I think he's upset about those Dr. Seuss books getting pulled. <laughs> Right. I, I tried to find why they're mad at Amazon. And I know Jeff Bezos owning the Washington Post, which is a very anti-Trump liberal 
paper for one. Um, but then the only other thing I could find was Amazon pulling a really rabidly anti-trans book. Um, or it was called When Harry Became Sally, which is just a hateful book. So Amazon pulled it. And then that's they, what they're furious about. That's the only thing I could find. It, it, it's sort of in line with their uh, big anti-Twitter censor, censorship thing now. Now that since Trump has been banned, that's been the main concern for many conservatives is, will I be next uh, for saying some really stupid stuff online? The culture, the culture wars, uh, so-called, are incredibly important for the far right, which is all of the right in the United States. And, and actually, I think like, you can look back in history and find examples of this. Um, a unionized workforce defending whiteness and white supremacy is like a far right wet dream. Uh, you know, that mm-hmm. if, if they if they could build that kind of power along those kind of lines, um, you know, uh, we'd be in some real big trouble. It, it's really just trying to mystify like uh, what's actually going on here. The dynamic is workers organizing against bosses. And then they're trying to make it about wokeness or about like whiteness and things it's like It's about that. the coastal elites. And, and um, right. It, uh, and meanwhile, you know, the wokeness amounts to Amazon would much rather, you know, find a couple of people of color and elevate them to higher positions and then make a PR thing out of it than allow their multiracial workforce to seize a greater bit of democracy over their own life mm-hmm. at work. Yeah. Um, j- just to wit, uh, I-, I think the workforce at the uh, warehouse in Alabama where this unionization vote took place was like 85% black. Right. Um, and Amazon famously fired a black worker at a Staten Island warehouse for speaking out about the conditions at, at the start of the pandemic. Um uh, the, this is sort of the money quote from Marco Rubio's op-ed, and I'm only going to read this bit because you know I don't want to speak voice to Marco Rubio's words much more than I have to. Um, quote, for decades, companies like Amazon have been allies of the left in the culture war, which fact check, not true, but we'll continue. But when their bottom line is threatened, they turn to conservatives to save them. Republicans have rightly understood the dangers posed by the unchecked influence of labor unions. Fact check. A lot of checks on labor unions' power. Um, Too many. Far too many. Uh, Continuing, adversarial relations between labor and management are wrong. They are wrong for both workers and our nation's economic competitiveness. But the days of conservatives being taken for granted by the business community are over. Here's my standard. When the conflict is between working Americans and a company whose leadership has decided to wage culture war against working class values, the choice is easy. I support the workers. <laughs> what do you even say to somebody who thinks like that? It's just wild. It's incredibly ridiculous. Like if you if you're an actual white supremacist, Amazon is actually probably the, the biggest distributor of that literature in the, on the entire planet right now. The amount of garbage that they host on there is is astounding. Um, so the right, Marco Rubio, uh, et cetera, as usual, um, it's, an, it, it's politics ba- based around bad faith argument and, and, you know, like positing a reality that doesn't quite exist and then arguing that um, you see it repeated across all of their talking points. It's just, and he conflates, like, I guess 
anti-trans views as uh, quote working class values because other than that what even is the culture war she's talking about i i genuinely don't know what great stand amazon has taken for um any sort of progressive cause you know and even their stand on this one is incredibly small it's just laughable too that Trans people are not workers, are not part of the working class. Right. And it's always this thing where people try to like confuse the working class with whiteness or patriarchy or things like that when the majority of workers are people of color, are women, like uh, not just those things. But working class means you own a pickup truck, right? You know, that's what it <laughs> yes. means. Yeah, you know, means you live in the suburbs. If you have some sort of uh, funny hair color, you can't be working class, even if you're like working as a barista. That, that, that is the thought process here. It's entirely about these sort of cultural signifiers rather than any sort of class analysis. This is the Make America Great Again message of like, let's go back to 1950s voice suburban, like, you know, working class, the baby boomers going out and getting these sort of jobs where they could exist and have. And, and build something for the next generation and that's been stolen from you from, um, you know, what they would tell you, the woke police or uh, people um, seeking asylum in this country, et cetera, et cetera. Um, one other uh, detail that apparently is part of the conservatives' current uh, reasons for being upset with Amazon is that they don't allow a racist charity to use its platform of, uh, you know, extremist groups behind like the uh, Capitol riot that happened in January, namely. So, you know, there's that. Um, an- another senator who's sort of big on this culture war stuff and big about talking, uh, calling out the quote unquote elites is a uh, Josh Hawley, Senator from Minnes or Missouri rather, you know, this is a guy with like a Stanford degree whose whole shtick is uh, this faux populism of talking about, you know, again, the same sort of culture war, uh, cultural elite stuff that uh, Marco Rubio is pitching in this article. And yet you won't find him voting for a $15 minimum wage. You won't find him supporting the PRO Act, which would give workers power over these corporations and the elites he supposedly hates. It's there's no substance to it. It's all performative. I mean, we're just hitting it over and over again. Like these senators, Rubio and Holly, especially their job or what their strategy is, is to confuse what the working class is, is to keep on hitting the culture war button over and over and over. Uh, and sadly, it, it seemed to work to some degree. Um, I, I mean, our job is really like as people on the left is try to like, do what Bernie did. It's the 1% and the 99%. It's the workers and it's the owners. Like that is the true dynamic of what's going on. And that doesn't have to be some class reductionist thing where we're not talking about, you know, trans people's experience. We're not talking about um, people of color's experience um, at work because we all exist at work far too much of the time. Uh, our lives are eaten up by, by this work. Um, Yeah, um, sort of another front in this culture war now is uh, Major League Baseball, which uh, recently made the decision to move its All-Star game this year, which had been scheduled for uh, the Brave Stadium in Cobb County, Georgia, 
from Georgia, and now will be held in Colorado. Uh, this was in response to Georgia's recent um, voter suppression law, um, which itself is a reaction to the fact that Democrats won elections in Georgia this past fall for the first time in several decades now. Um, Joe Biden won the presidency, and then both Senate seats went to Democrats, which swung the balance of the Senate to what it is now. Um, And so Georgia imposed uh, new restrictions on mail-in ballots, new requirements for IDing, um, new limits to early voting, you know, all sorts of things that are designed to prevent that from happening again. Um, Specifically, uh, one of the things is cutting down on Sunday voting, which historically has been used in the African-American community there, the souls to the polls, especially uh, black churches are big on turning out voters on Sundays. Um, So in response to this, conservatives uh, um, have now waged war against Major League Baseball itself, you know, uh, no friend to workers. Uh, You know, look up what Major League Baseball has done for its minor league players, um, the exemptions to minimum wage that they've carved out for themselves. Um, And, a couple have called for MLB's antitrust exemption to be revoked, um, which, you know, those on the left should not fear. That would be fine. It's, it's just funny to see conservatives like trying to stake out this balance between their normal pro-business positions and what they perceive as uh, business overreach in the form of like mild progressive stances. Now, uh, Ryan, I'm sorry. What is the MLB's uh, uh, antitrust exemption? I'm not even clear on what that is. Basically, no, most businesses that are, like dominate their field, their industry, like Major League Baseball does, would be subject to antitrust law. They would be broken up because they are effectively a monopoly of on baseball, on professional baseball. And so in the early 20th century, they received an antitrust exemption that uh, insulates them from competition effectively. And it's, yeah, I, I see. It's, it's very interesting um, because I feel like the media, like kind of the centrist media uh, conflates the populist left and the populist right. When leftists have a clear goal of democratizing the economy, improving like people's work, the, the lives of working people and the right, this quote, populism that they seem to uh, inhabit. It's just about punishing companies that go against like their little gang or their like, quote, cultural values, which is just really racism and patriarchy, et cetera. And and if the right wing can find an angle uh, like that in sports, they know that there's a huge chunk of their base that are going to freak out over stuff like that. You know, we saw that with the um, Colin Kaepernick stuff, you know, that they saw where they could touch on a nerve um, and as usual, they appeal to emotion and not reason um, or theory or anything like that. Another example of this in response to uh, Georgia's election laws is I, I think Coca-Cola and Delta had made just anodyne pro-democracy statements. And in response, uh, the Georgia Assembly voted to revoke the um, tax break Delta gets on uh, jet fuel. Delta is headquartered in Atlanta. Um, this didn't end up passing Georgia Senate, but still it's like, you know, you could have done that any time over the last several decades. And this is why they're doing it. it it's not any opposition to uh, like 
jet fuel tax breaks. It's about Delta putting out a statement on Twitter, if that. It, it's just, I'm sorry, I keep reiterating it, or going to, but uh, it's just so upsetting that I see like the New York Times or the Washington Post or MSNBC conflate the left and the right as like using things like populist or like alt-left or whatever, when it, it's just so absurd that it's just to push their political goals and it's never to help working people when the right does things like this. And whenever you see the right pushing any of their ideas among organized working people, I think that we can sort of, we can lay some of the blame on the Democratic Party for seeding that grounds a long time ago and sort of abandoning um, uh, class struggle as a thing. When an Obama official is the uh, PR head for Amazon and then Marco Rubio is I'm for unionization. Yeah, it, it it does become hard to uh, pitch to workers that the Democratic Party is on their side when they see things like that. It's um, and and oddly enough, they are at this moment. Are uh, many, the most I mean, of them are there they're are preferable, few- certainly. Yeah, you know, in, but, well, in this moment with the Pro Act, which is the yeah. most important thing, I mean, there are just how many? There are like five Democratic holdouts, which is so right. The question cool. is, can that pass through like a Senate that? Like is roadblocked by Joe Manchin, but Joe Manchin and m- several more. It's yeah, yeah Angus King, uh, Kristen Cinema, etc. It sort of goes both ways too. It's it's it's. I've had conversations with workers, you know, and we're doing a very standard card check sort of thing, where you know they're like, "Well, let me look up this union that you want me to put my signature on." Um, what have they been up to? Oh, they donated all of this money to the democratic party and what have they done for me lately, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I really think that there, there's a lot to be done within unions to sort of get back to uh, get back to basics. In my opinion, you know, why do we have like millions and millions of dollars going to the DNC and not building like giant strike funds to just like crush <laughs> the capitalist pigs, you know? I, uh, for the purposes of this show, I, I follow some union Twitter accounts and they're very fascinating things to follow because like AFT will be, you know, tweeting about the importance of workers. This is the American Federation of Teachers. And then they'll just tweet about something seemingly unrelated to education or teaching that just happens to be the Democratic Party's priority that day. It's um very strange to see. I've read a little bit about the labor history and it seemed like in the nineties, maybe the eighties, a lot of the bigger unions took a turn towards acting more like nonprofits, NGOs aligned with the democratic party. I I remember hearing one thing where uh, one, a PR person for a union was recommending they don't use the phrasing working class because that could be alienating to voters instead to use middle class. Uh, They say working families a lot instead of working class. That's another sort of pivot. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it, you know, something that you notice on like the campaign trail last year or in the primaries is Bernie Sanders is one of the few candidates who uses that term working class because the others have been coached out of uh, referring to things in terms of class that way. You know, they'll talk about the middle class and nothing else. Um, but, you know, you talk about that uh, happening in the 80s and 90s, but it's a been a decades long shift that started probably in the late fifties and sixties, you know, of unions viewing their role as 
benefiting the Democratic Party's electoral goals as that being the best way for unions to achieve what they want, which, of course, not to get too deep into the history, like ties into the way that unions were sort of de-radicalized during the uh, late 40s under the Red Scare. The Taft-Hartley Act did a lot to um, purge these unions of their more radical elements, anarchists and communists that um, had made up the rank and file of many unions right up through World War II in this country. And, and so unions became uh, just a voice for liberals now. And that's something that uh, if we want to see you know, more radical change is going to have to be altered. It's going to have to come from the bottom up. From the oh, bottom sorry. up. And there are individuals in working for unions now that I think they realize this historical error and they will, um, you know, definitely support radicalism to whatever extent they can without, of course, getting fired by the international. Uh, it's um, to sort of tie this episode together. It's just funny seeing companies sort of hit by both sides. You know, if they use progressive rhetoric, they're never going to be uh, progressive enough to actually support unionization in their workplaces because that affects the bottom line. And at the same time, they're going to be hit by conservatives for uh, daring to speak up on uh, like letting people vote. There aren't a lot of companies that are like vocally like pro-Trump, except for like the weird fringe of like the my pillow guy and um, you know what have you. It's um, it, it, well, you can see like uh, companies like in things like Pride Day or things like our Pride Month and things like that will use that language now that it is like more popular and things like that. Right. It just seems like both sides. Um, these companies that use progressive language or the right, which cut, tries to punish companies for using progressive language are both trying to mystify and confuse people from just the true dyma- dynamic again and again, which is the working class and the owners. If companies can convince their workers that, Hey, we're all family here, then maybe they won't think about demanding better pay or better conditions or uh, more advanced warning as to what their schedule will be. And at the same time, if conservatives can convince people that the reason uh, companies are their enemy is that they support like uh, diversity initiatives, then, you know, that's not going to help working class people either. That's, you know, not going to be to our benefit. We're getting near the end of our hour here, but um, I want to thank both of you for joining uh, today. Um, I, I guess to wrap up, the question would be, what do we do about this? You know, how, you know, how do we get out of this weird culture war trap and back to actually winning unionization? Because, you know, progressive companies now can union bust with the best of them. I think it's already occurring. I think, uh, there is a change going on and, uh, uh, that, um, like you can see it with like uh, the the teachers unions, these wildcat strikes, which started a couple of years ago, that um, they're not just going to play nice. Like people know at the end of the day, people know if you're like being abused, if you don't have dignity at your workplace, if you're not being paid enough, like our message can resonate and will resonate. Like th- they are ruthless. The anti-union efforts, they're going to do everything at their disposal. They're going to use, they're going to make comrade cluck chicken and say, we're a big family and all that kind of stuff. 
But at the end of the day, like the truth is the truth. Like we just have to work. I, I really think that, um, you know, as far as the culture war button that keeps getting mashed over and over again, the, the answer to this is to, to reframe that, bring it back into the workplace and start talking about how when white workers and black workers unite on a common cause, that's good for all workers, all people. And that the basis of race is, uh, you know, an intentional division of the working class. Um, and we really need to start talking about that. As far as unions go, I'm a really big fan now. And, I, and this is informed by my experience at Hearts uh, going the routes of a very traditional sort of union drive. Um, I'd like to see workers start experimenting with this a little bit more. You know, like people, we, we, need, we really need to, if, if labor law in this country is so messed up that we can't build power, um, maybe we need to start breaking those laws. And maybe we need to start building power in our workplaces outside of those frameworks um, and taking direct action for our bread and butter needs in the immediate. Yeah, um, this is something that you're s sort of starting to see. You're seeing more experimentation with what uh, collective action looks like. Um, we've seen employee walkouts at Google in recent years. Um, and, you know, the stirrings of a union there, though it's an unconventional one within the last few months. Um, so that might be a reason for hope on this, that, you know, that neither the conservative culture war nonsense nor the uh, rhetoric of, you know, we're just a family is actually fooling workers on the ground. They see through it. Um, and, you know, hopefully that will lead to good things in the years and decades to come. Um, for this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Greg. I'm Alex. This is Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.